0: If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me in the Gospel of John in uh, the 11th chapter. We'll look at John 11 together this morning as we're continuing in a series of sermons that we titled the series, When People Meet Jesus. And what we're doing is we're opening the Gospels and taking different scenes where Jesus puts his power on display, his compassion on display, really puts himself on display, and we get a remarkable picture of who he is in John chapter 11. And it matters much in your life what you believe about Jesus. It matters much in your life what you think about him, what you know about him. Uh, I think almost no one believes the world is fine the way that it is. I don't meet many people who say, you know what, everything's good and I don't really want anything to change. We're inching in and maybe more uh, galloping into the election season. And there's really no politician that stands before the newsreels and says, uh, you know what, my plan is we're just status quo. That's what we're going to do. They Argue, here's what I'm going to change and so on and and, and so forth. No no politician stands up and says, you know, four years from now, pretty much things are going to be the same. You might you know pay a lot more for health care, and we might raise some taxes, and that's probably probably what we're going to do, although they would probably get credit for at least telling the truth, right? Oh, and by the way, you're still better off than most everybody else on earth thats all, that's also true, right? I, I mean, most people can 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 agree no matter how we differ on any number of things, that the world's not really fine the way that it, that it is. We all know something's wrong, right? Something's wrong with the world, although we might disagree on exactly what it is. At least we can agree there is something wrong. Now, when we open up the Bible, <clears throat> the Bible was clear that that something that's wrong has a name. It's called sin. As we saw last week in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, sin has devastating effects, right? It leaves us unclean before God. It leaves us ostracized from one another. It leaves us hardened and insensitive to our Creator. It spreads and affects all of our being, and it has no man-made cure. And it ultimately leads to death. Well, the Bible helps us in at least getting us started and saying that the what's wrong is not some somewhere out there, although its effects are out there. What's wrong is really it's really in here. Last week we saw with the leper that that Jesus is both willing and able to make the unclean clean. Today in John chapter eleven, we'll get up front, up close and personal again with sin's ultimate effect which is called death which has impacted everybody in the room and if it hasn't impacted you personally it will impact you personally in fact it'll get as personal as it can get because death is coming for us all for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and the wages of sin help me church is is death if you've ever sinned you're going to die Well, before we jump into John 11, just a few reminders. We read some of these verses last week. I want to speak them over you again today so we can just hear week in and week out who our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body. The church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. See death is not preeminent. Amen. Jesus is preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How does Jesus make peace for you? Through the blood of the cross. I love Colossians 1. It talks about how glorious and and, and magnificent and huge Jesus is. And I also love Hebrews 4 because it gives us a glimpse in how personal, how close he is. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. And then then again from Isaiah 53, a very brief but powerful statement. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And in the end for us, human beings living on the earth, probably nothing brings as much grief or as much sorrow as sin's ultimate effect, which is death. So what we want to say this morning is, if Jesus can say nothing in the face of death, then in some ways he can, he can say nothing. But you want some good news? He, he has much to say and much he can do in the face of death. The greatest news that has ever been given was given on a Sunday. And in God's providence, do you know where it was given? It was given in a cemetery. Luke 24 tells us on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking with them the burial spices they had prepared. This group of ladies, they were going to a funeral and they didn't know they were going to a resurrection. is that good news? When they got to the tomb, they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Our eternity hinges on the validity of these words. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men in dazzling apparel said to them. It's a good question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen just as he said. Paul put it this way. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you have my permission not to come back after this morning. Because it's a waste of time. However, however if Christ is raised from the dead, you both have my invitation to come back so we can exalt him together. And you also have the commissioning from him to take this news to the ends of the earth. Amen. So we want to see a picture of this in John chapter 11, a precursor uh, of, of your resurrection that is to come. So we're going to begin by praying in a simple prayer. I want you to join me in asking God in in humility, but also on the basis of Hebrews 4, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace. Just ask of of the Lord, and I believe God the Father is willing to answer this prayer, please show me Jesus clearly. Show me Jesus clearly what He has done and who He is. Let's pray to that end. Father, not only do we need to see clearly what What's, what's wrong with the world, we also need to see clearly what you have done about it. Because you've done something about it. You've not just outlined in the Bible what the problem is called sin. You've also clearly outlined in the Bible how you took the initiative, though sinless, to deal with the problem of sin. So we're asking for grace this morning that from John 11, we see Jesus clearly, both who He is and what He's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John 11 begins in this way, now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha quick question it's just the same Mary and Martha we looked at a few weeks ago that Martha anxious and troubled about many things and her sister Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus answer to that question yes that's exactly the same family and so uh, we've advanced in the timeline a little bit and we're told that Lazarus is, is sick it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So in John chapter 11, we're going to meet two grieving sisters and they're grieving because their brother has died. We haven't gotten there yet. We begin, we begin in John 11 with them sending word to Jesus that he needs to hurry up and come because Lazarus, whom you love, as they wrote, is, is ill. So we begin with these sisters sending word out to Jesus. He's not in Bethany. He's a little ways away from Bethany that they want him to come and they expected Jesus to come and help. They anticipated Jesus would race to Bethany as soon as he heard Lazarus is sick. He's dropping everything else and he's going to come and he's going to help Lazarus out. Countless times, these sisters have observed Jesus goes out of his way to help strangers, people he doesn't know, at least from their perspective, right? Right? So surely when Jesus finds out that somebody that he knows and has visited with, he stayed in their home, there's every indication in the Gospels that Jesus was good friends with this family. Surely when they find out Lazarus is sick, he'll come quickly. But Jesus didn't come. He didn't show up. Now think about how this must have gone over in Bethany, right? Sister sent word. Can you picture them? Lazarus is getting worse and worse. And they keep watching the horizon saying, has he come yet? Has he come yet? Has he... And they keep watching. And, and, and they have every anticipation that he's going to get there before Lazarus dies. Has he come yet? Has anyone seen Jesus? I know he'll come. I know he'll get here in time. And, and Lazarus approaches death. And finally, he takes his last breath. Can you imagine how this moment must have gone, right? Right. He's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Lazarus has died. What? He didn't come. He didn't make it here. It can't be. It can't be that Lazarus died and Jesus never showed up. We're going to see. They they don't understand, right? They're confused. In fact, it's, it's not too much to say that they're frustrated, they're hurt, they're disappointed, they're confused. Quick question, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Been at the hospital? Been at the doctor? Prayed and prayed and it'll turn, he'll come, he'll show up and then you felt like, and I'm choosing my words carefully, you felt like God let you down. Mary and Martha are there in John chapter 11. Confused and disappointed and hurt towards Jesus. Now, this is really, 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 really really, really important. Jesus knew something they didn't know. Jesus knew something they didn't know. And... Most of the time, if not all the time, when we're frustrated, confused, disappointed with God or with how things have happened or how things have turned out, He always knows something that we don't know. What well, we need is grace in our lives to believe it. And what we want to demonstrate here is that's not wishful thinking. That's not some pie-in-the-sky hope, well, well, no, no, it's rock-solid, biblical truth. In Mary and Martha's case, this season of confusion and frustration goes on for about four days. In your case, I just have to go in and tell you, that may go on for 40 years. That may go on for 60 years. In fact, fact, you might yourself take your last breath on earth, still wondering, how is this all going to work out? But there's coming a day. Friend, there's coming a day when Jesus will reveal it. We, we use this phrase and we kind of throw it around, but there's going to come a day when your faith will be sight. And it wasn't just being optimistic and sort of a feel-good sort of faith. No, no. We want to believe in real things. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, not the optimistic hope for things that might never be. Do you understand? And that's the difference between the two. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. So, I just want us to see on the front end uh, that Mary and Martha are frustrated, confused. Why, why, why did he raise the widow at Nain's son? Why did he heal these blind people? And and he didn't help out us. In Mary Martha's case, he did not show up on their schedule for a specific reason. We get that specific reason in verse 4. So so we just got to keep reading. Sometimes in the Bible, you just got to keep reading. Sometimes in your life, you got to keep praying, keep hoping, keep believing. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Here's something you can trust in your life. Even though it, may never, it might not be so clear in the moment. Everything God does, He does for His glory. He says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I, I want you to see something real briefly with me. You see in that phrase the word glory and glorified. And just for a moment, just for a moment... Look over here in John 11, verse 39. I'm sorry, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So I just want you to see these phrases used on the front end, this phrase used in the back end. So can we agree a little bit? A a real simple uh, hermeneutic principle as we study the Bible. Obviously in this text, the glory of God is an important subject. Can we agree on that? The glory of God is important. So, so we'll just hang on to that as we continue to, to, to study. He doesn't show up when they think, but he says he's doing it for the glory of God. Now, we're going to jump in, and here's a real simple outline. I know you've got a blank insert, and there's not a bunch of fill in the blanks, but it's a real simple outline. Jesus is going to have three conversations, one with Martha, one with Mary one with Lazarus. That's our outline. What he says to Martha, then what he says to Mary, then what he does. He has a pretty brief conversation, by the way, with Lazarus. It's going to be pretty much one statement, but it's everything's going to hinge about around what he does say to Lazarus. And it's all about his glory. So quick question, quick question. Glory is sort of a word we only use in church. And what can happen at times when we only use words in church, they don't really, it's kind of confusing of what they mean right? We pray we want God to be glorified. We say we want God to be glorified, but simple question, what does that mean? Does anybody know what what does that mean? I want Jesus to be glorified. And sometimes if we just take off a spiritual veneer and just think about words we use in church in terms of how it would play out in everything else that's not churchy, we'd we'd understand. We human beings are 100% glory factories. Did you know that? We glorify things constantly. Facebook, Social media works this way. Do you know what social media is? Social media is pretty much glory central, right? Look at this. Check this out. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? We'll post things and do things. And what we're doing as you scroll down is you're saying, well, here's somebody glorifying that. And here's somebody glorifying that. Here's somebody glorifying that. We don't have to make this more complicated than it really is. Turn on the TV today. You'll see thousands of people at National Football League games. And they're doing crazy things. Some of them are going to be all painted up, right? And their team colors. They bought the jersey of their favorite player. They're screaming. They're yelling. Some of them, when we get a little bit later on in the year, will be sitting in 10-degree weather, shirtless, these men, right? Screaming at the top of the lungs, uh, uh, cheering for people they've never met in their lives, right? You take a step back and you say, that it's, it's crazy, right? Well, what are they doing? They're effect. We all are. We're always talking about, look at this, like this, read this. We glorify all sorts of things. Athletes, brand names, ourselves, politicians, music artists, restaurants, movies, television shows, authors. The list goes on and on and on. Jesus says, I do what I do for the glory of God, for the name of God. For the reputation of God, for the renown of God. So he said that. Now, let's let's look at what he does. We'll pick up here in verse seventeen of when Jesus shows up in Bethany. He's going to have a conversation with Mary, Martha first, and then and then Mary, and we'll read through it. But but one other thing I want you to notice is that as he has the conversation with Mary and Martha, they both say to him the exact same thing. Uh, John 11, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then look at John 11, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here My brother would not have died. Did you see that? Now, here's a pop quiz question. If two ladies in two different conversations at two different times say the exact same thing, what do we know? They've obviously been talking about this ahead of time for four days. Here's my guess. For four days, Mary and Martha were talking, and that is the conclusion that they have reached. That is, uh, they, they, they may have talked for hours and hours. I don't know. Or maybe they just sat in stunned silence and kept saying to themselves and to each other, if he'd been here, if he'd been here, if he'd been here. Maybe you've got a if statement that you've got that defines your relationship with God. If you had done this, then this would have happened. Do you have an if statement? I have to tell you, it's okay. It's okay to have if statements. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, uh, it's, it's not so much that the devil steals our answers, it's sometimes he steals our questions. I, I, I can tell you that God can handle all of your if statements. He's not afraid of them. He's not, uh, he's, he, he's not a politician in the heavens that's afraid of a gotcha question. He can handle all the if statements. And, and you know, Job had some if statements. And, and now here's, here's what we've got to know from the Scripture. Most of the time when someone has an if statement, God responds Maybe not specifically answering their question, but just stating who he is. Job had some if statements, and here's his question. Now, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, you got questions for God. Sometimes he's got questions for you. Where were you, Job, when I separated the heavens from the earth? Where were you, Job? Where do I, where do I store all the resources of the earth? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? God can handle your if questions and Jesus can handle the if questions of Mary and Martha. So let's look at scene number one, Jesus and Mary. I'm sorry, got that one wrong. Jesus and Martha. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus. All right. So she's got the first word. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's a little little bit accusatory, isn't it? Ever been met at the door with a question or a statement rather? Lord. Lord. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever he ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will arise again in the resurrection on the last day. Remember when I said that oftentimes we got an if question, God's just going to tell you who he is. You ready? Here he is. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There it is again, right? Sometimes you've got a question for God. God has a question for you. Do you believe this? By, by the way, I know he's asking Martha, but it's a question for you too, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the, and the life? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Who is coming into the world? Well, well, well. Sounds like Martha finally went to listening and sitting at his feet, right? At some, at some point. Now, Martha tells him that he come, he's come too late. He responds by telling her, "says who?" Right? Who says I've come too late? He's the resurrection and the life. Now, um, in order to to see a little bit what's going on here, let, let's go on and, and also pick up his interaction with Mary. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, a little bit more than a teacher, we'll see that in a moment, and he's calling for you. And then she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, he was still in the place where Martha had met him. (laughs) Martha marched out of the village to confront him, right? When the Jews who were with her were in the house consoling her, saw Mary arise quickly and go, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know this for sure. Same statement, but it sure feels a little bit like Martha's confrontational, angry, and and Mary's sad and disappointed. Same event, two sisters... Same statement, but maybe a little bit different response. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, she was, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, here's the context for this verse we always talk about. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and it's there, your Bible says, Jesus Jesus wept, Jesus sobbed. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? There it is. There's that criticism that's hanging in the air. Why, why didn't he do something about this? I mean, if he loves this man like this, why is he off healing people he doesn't even know? Right. Now, now uh, it's interesting. We'll talk about it more in a moment that Jesus weeps at the tomb. But the question we have to ask is, is that all he can do there? It's all you can do there. It's all I can do there. And if he can't do any more than that, he's empathetic and sympathetic. But again, if that's all he can do there, then we still got problems, right? Still got problems. Here's the question that's hanging in the air. Is Can he do anything in this moment or is it too late? Now, I've heard, I believe it was Tim Keller, preach on this text they said, if this story was made up by a person, the divine figure we would suspect would just march up there, a big smile on his face, because he knows. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave, right? He knows that. And if we just made this story up, we just have him march there, hey, roll that to me. And then we get this pause, this, this, this moment where he's, where he's weeping. Now, if we, take these two, if we take these two interactions, one with Martha, one with Mary, here's what we learn about Jesus. He's fully God. I'm the resurrection in the life. I'm the resurrection in and life. and he's fully human. He's weeping. He's not disconnected. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I think this with, with Mary is a moment where we see Jesus clearly. He doesn't just say it, He, does, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Who is Jesus? He's not 50% God and 50% man, right? Or 80, 20, or however you want to break it down. He's fully God and he's fully man. He's God come in the flesh. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an amazing picture that we get here. His encounter with Martha emphasizes he's God. He's, his encounter with Mary emphasizes that he's human. Look at his response to Martha again in John eleven twenty five. 25. He doesn't simply claim that he can revive Lazarus, right? He doesn't say, I can resurrect him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He, <laughs> there's a strong desire in many circles, and you're probably familiar with them, and some of you present today may even be in this circle, that portray Jesus as a great man and a remarkable teacher, Right? Many are quick to say he's wise and he's, he's great. And so let's put him, if you will, on the Mount Rushmore of religious leaders. He can be up there with with a couple of other names, whoever you want to put up there. But if you read the Gospels, honestly, I have to tell you, we're confronted with the fact that Jesus himself claimed to be much more than a great teacher. This is just one of many examples of this. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't really think it's important how many times elsewhere you make a nice statement or give a good lesson Or talk about being nice to people or being merciful. If over and over and over again you claim to be God. We can't just really sit back and say well let's ignore all the God claims. And just focus on his nice teachings on forgiveness and mercy. In Luke 10 Jesus said I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's a statement that he makes saying he's been there from the beginning. right? In Mark 2 he forgives a man of his sins. They got upset about it for a reason. Why? Only God can forgive sins. In John 5, a crowd picks up stones to kill him because they had heard him claim to be equal with God. In John 8, another crowd does the same thing when he claimed not only to be older than Abraham, but to be the eternal God. I am. They knew what that statement meant. In John 14, he claims not merely to have the truth, but to be the truth. In John 20, Thomas bows down and calls Jesus, my Lord and my God, and Jesus accepts his worship without comment, right? C.S. Lewis is well known. Those others have made the observation. There's really only three options when it comes to Jesus in a time like John 11. He's either deceiving, or he's deceived, or he's divine. That's it. Those are really the only options. Jesus demands a radical response of some kind, Right? The only thing we can't do is respond to him moderately. Another way of looking at these conversations is that Martha gets what we might call the ministry of truth. And Mary gets what we'll call the ministry of tears, right? He's full of grace and truth. And that takes wisdom and discernment, as, as, as you love people, to know the time and place for which one, right? Right? some of us have received been the recipients of a ministry of truth when what we really needed was a grieving weeping friend right and and, and then sometimes and and probably more frequently honestly in our day is people need to have be recipients of the ministry of truth and what they receive is is the ministry of tears right we we need both And, and don't you see that Jesus always does the right one at the right time There's never a moment in his ministry where we can, as critics, look and say, well, you know what What he really should have done was this, or what he really should have said was was that. There are times we need to wake up and look around and know we're wrong about something, and other times we need a friend who stands by the graveside and weeps. We're seeing here that he's the lion and the lamb, amen? We're seeing that he's absolutely approachable to the weak and the broken, and yet he's completely fearless before the corrupt and the powerful. He has tenderness without weakness. He's got strength without harshness. He's got humility without the slightest lack of confidence. And you want to talk about somebody who's confident, hey, roll that stone away. That's a pretty confident state, but isn't it? He's got holiness and unending convictions without any shortage of approachability. He's both God and man. So... If Jesus is both God and human, if he's fully God and fully man, we're left with this question. Why did he do it, right? Why did he come in this way? And for that answer, we've got to get the third scene. That's Jesus and Lazarus. So we've seen Jesus. He interacts with Martha. And then he interacts with Lazarus. And then he's got a pretty amazing interaction with Lazarus. And then Jesus, verse 38 Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Deeply moved again, as how my translation reads it. Yours might say it a little bit differently. And, um, and, and I don't know quite why, I think I do, but a lot of translators want to step back a little bit from the thrust of what the word really means, the Greek word. You know what it really means? Jesus came angry to the tomb. That's what it really means. He came angry to the tomb. Not not uh, out of control, flying off the handle anger, but righteous indignation. The same the same character traits that he demonstrates when he cleanses the temple, right? When he clears that place out. Now I have to tell you, I, I actually find it encouraging that the King of Kings, the Son of God, comes to the tomb. Not passive. Not uh, <laughs> he comes with righteous anger. Why? Because it's in this place the full effect of sin. Is seen most clearly in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what shall surely die. God had said that's the effect of sin, and now here's Jesus, deeply moved, interesting, interesting translation, bellowing with anger. That's what it actually means. It goes from weeping, where have you laid him, to bellowing with anger. Jesus comes to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, "Take away." The stone. Now, who's he angry with? I don't think he's angry with Martha. I don't think he's angry with Mary. I don't think he's angry with Lazarus. I think he's angry at sin and death and its effect on us. And he doesn't come to the tomb resigned and polite and tell everybody there, remember, whole crowd's there now, say, hey, y'all just have to learn to deal with this. This is the way it is, right? Death happens. It's the way the world works. He doesn't do that. He does something about it. Now, Martha, you remember, she likes to put on a nice party. She's she's concerned with what's the right thing to do. Mary, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, here it is again, you would see the glory of God? I don't care what you want to put up on Facebook, or what you want to glorify, or whose team you want to cheer for, nobody's able to do what Jesus is about to do here. That's why he should get our our glory. So they took away the stone. I don't don't know if they debated it back and forth. You know, the, the interesting thing in the Gospels is Jesus never shows up to a funeral or a place of death and is passive. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I like what one commentator said. He said he has to be specific at Lazarus's tomb. Just Lazarus. So He says, come out, everybody's coming out. So just right now, right now, just you, Lazarus. Just you, Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died, it's been four days, been four days, came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want us to see something Clearly, because just in the same way that the the leper from last week, his healing is more than a one-time healing. The the same way the leper is a visual object lesson for us about salvation, we're we're being given here a wonderful visual object lesson again of salvation. He's the resurrection and the life. He's he's both. Why does he say both? Because they're actually not synonymous terms. Now, before you can have life, if you're dead, you need a what? You need a resurrection. But after you have a resurrection, then what do you have from that point forth? Then you have life. And Lazarus is a wonderful physical representation of your spiritual salvation. Jesus speaks to him. Jesus comes for him. Jesus speaks to him. He calls him by name and says, Lazarus, come out. And the Bible says, and the dead man, what? Walked out. And then after he walks out, the Bible gives a pretty interesting description of him, doesn't he? He doesn't walk out and do a cartwheel. He walks out and the Bible says, no, let me get it, get it just so. The Bible says, he came out, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. So, uh, so real, real fast question. Does he have life? Yes. Yes. He's been resurrected. But does he have life in such a way that it's enjoyable? No. If you think so, let's just bound you up with some linen strips and put put grave clothes over your eyes, right? He he can see, but not very well. If he tried to talk, it would sound muffled. And, And Jesus says something. Hey, we gave him life. We gave him life. He's come out, but now he needs something else. Now he needs to be unbound got life he's got resurrection but now he needs help to be able to enjoy the resurrected life that he's got we all on the same page right it's great it's great to come out of the tomb it's great to have life where there was no life hallelujah praise the lord god has raised him from the dead but but now but now he needs some help and, and I think it's a picture of the church, quite frankly, that Jesus says to these other people who's going around, hey, y'all go over and, and unbind him. What we learn from that is he can't unbind himself. That's the way the grave clothes would have worked. He probably would have been bound like this, and he's taking steps. It's an amazing sight to see him come out of the tomb, but he's got to have somebody start to unwrap these. And as they get going, I bet he's able to get a hand loose, and he's be able to take some— What's this a picture of? The grave clothes are a picture of the fact that you come out of the tomb spiritually, but you've got some leftover stuff, right? Some of us got sinful strongholds. You've been resurrected, but you're still bound to anger, bound to pornography, bound to hostility, bound to discouragement or fear or anxiety. Got life still bound up. Do you see? But we actually need something beyond even this. Bible terms would be justification, sanctification is being unbound and then glorification, because if left to himself, hey, this is great, but what's Lazarus ultimately going to do? Anybody seen Lazarus around today? He's still going to die again at some point. We don't know when. So good news, Jesus has done more for you than just give you temporary life. He's come to give you eternal life. It's coming a day where he's going to resurrect us all eternally, permanently, and we'll be unbound and we'll be free forevermore. Amen. I have to tell you, um, Back to Luke 24. <laughs> I had never really thought of this. And, uh, and I don't want to stretch this meaning too, too much, but I couldn't help but think of this. Um, I, one of the reasons Jesus must be weeping and even angry is he, he understands for Lazarus to truly be able to come out of that grave, he's going to have to go into it. Jesus is. Jesus is going to have to lay down his life. Nobody takes his life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Death is the result of sin. Jesus has never sinned. Why does Jesus die? Because he says, I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to suffer in your place. Uh, picture of the leper. I'm going to be out in desolate places for you. We're going to, tr- we're going to trade. We're going to trade places. Um, if, uh, if the grave clothes are a picture of sin, that's why I love Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, after the announcement, he's risen just as he said. The women returned to the disciples and told them all the things that they had heard but it seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe it. That's what the Bible says in Luke 24 about the disciples after Jesus is raised from the dead. But then it says, but, but Peter raced to the tomb, stooping and looking in. You remember Anybody remember what he saw there? He saw the grave clothes folded and lying there. Isn't that interesting? Who folded them up? You see, Lazarus needed help. Taking these grave clothes off. And, and Jesus, more than likely, wasn't completely wrapped up the way that Lazarus was, but he has some grave clothes on, but he wraps him up. It's a picture to us that Jesus was not bound by sin. Jesus does not go into the grave wrapped up in his own sin, and Jesus doesn't need your help, my help, anybody's help. Those women come to the tomb with their burial spice. he doesn't need anybody else's help putting those grave clothes aside because he's sinless he's the son of god he went into the tomb not as a result of his own sin paul says it. we quote it almost weekly quote it almost weekly because we need to understand that he who knew no sin became sin that in him this great exchange we might become the righteousness of god amen now, death is coming for us. We don't know when it is. We don't know how it'll happen. We just know that it will happen. The only people that won't die are the ones that will be caught up in the air with Jesus when he comes back. Dead in Christ will rise first and then we'll meet them in the air. That's what the Bible says, right? So death is coming. But I'll give you a few concluding applications before we have the invitation. Those who believe in Jesus need not fear death. That's a pretty simple application, isn't it? But it's true, all right? It's true. Those who believe in Jesus need not fear death. Death is a defeated enemy. Death does not have dominion. Christ has dominion. Death is not preeminent. Christ is preeminent. Why? Why don't you need to fear death? Not, not because it won't happen, but because when it happens, Apostle Paul puts it this way, For me to live as Christ, die is actually gain. Those statements go together. Death is only gain if living is Christ. Amen. But if my life is about glorifying Christ, death is a defeated enemy. In fact, to be absent from the body in death is to be present with the Lord. And one other application that I want you to hang your hat on for the rest of your life. We can trust God to work out all things ultimately for His glory. So don't be impatient with him and don't judge his actions on the basis of your preferred timeline. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that can even be said of illnesses leading to death. Amen. Stand together. We're going to pray together. Have an invitation together. you bow your heads with me? The gospel of John doesn't end in John 11. It keeps going because for us to have eternal life and an eternal resurrection requires more than a physical resurrection. It it requires eternal life. A few concluding questions for our invitation. Are, are you ready for death? It's not meant to be dramatic. It's a simple question. If you know something's going to happen, but you don't know when or where, doesn't it make sense that you'd be prepared? It makes no sense to ignore It, it makes no sense to not prepare or think soberly about it. There are a lot of people who die unprepared for death. Jesus came. Jesus came that you'd be able to approach death without fear, knowing that He's overcome the grave. It's no coincidence that the greatest news that has ever been given was given from a cemetery. Second, You've been resurrected. This is for everybody who's believed on Jesus. You've been spiritually resurrected. You've gone from death to life. But are there some things in your life this morning that you're bound up in? They might preclude you from seeing him clearly or speaking clearly or moving in the right direction. You're just bound up in some things that you came up out of the grave and you know, you know that you've been given resurrection life in Jesus. But you're still bound up in some things. Jesus' desire for you. Is that you'd be unbound and let go. So that you can enjoy the fullness. Of the resurrected life he's provided for you. You might want to just. Take some time during the invitation. Pray to the Lord. Whether where you are or here at the front. And say God I want to be. Unbound. Unbound. And and believe that you can. Sometimes you'll need some help from other people. Other people who know about the struggle. Other people who pray for you. Other people who hold you accountable. Who keep you from going back to the tomb. You've been set free. And last. Perhaps you're here today and you've never come out of the grave. Spiritually speaking. Jesus says it specifically. Calls us by name. And he says come out come out believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved I'll stand here at the front if anybody has a prayer concern or an urgent decision to make that's what the invitation's for Father I pray for anybody here today that's discouraged even frustrated because you've not done or worked out how in our preconceived notions you should have done things Help us to trust and have grace that you will ultimately work all things out for the glory of your own name. Father, on the subject of death, I pray you'd help us to be believers who don't shy away from this reality, but we trust that living is Christ and so dying is gain. Pray for anyone here today that spiritually has never been resurrected to life they'll hear clearly the voice of Jesus and they'll know that you're willing to take on our grave clothes you're willing to go into the tomb on our behalf and praise God hallelujah you marched out three days later and you are not bound in any way shape or form today with the remnants of sin thank you for Jesus Jesus pray that he's glorified in our invitation. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.